Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. Boom, boom, shake, shake the room. Buyers booking tickets like they're headed to the moon. Stocks popping off like Steph Curry's got room. Shooting from the logo like the finals in June. Inflation slowing down, air leaking from the balloon. Do we really think the Fed's going to change its tune? Slow its roll, rein in the terminal rate. Take smaller steps as asset prices deflate. Give us a sign that we reach the peak. Peak yields, peak dollars, that cycle complete? Are growth stocks finally priced to compete? Or is this another trap? Are we going to repeat the bear market rally from last July? That one kind of stung, I'm not going to lie, but this feels different, you can't deny. Money flowing into the queues and the spy, but not for crypto, oh no, oh my. Another broker going bankrupt, withdrawals denied? It's getting wild in there, FTX is a mess. Let's break it all down on the Investopedia Express. If you thought investors were desperate for good news, you were right. A not-as-bad-as-expected CPI report last week set off a buying spree in stocks the likes of which we haven't seen since the March madness of 2020. Last Thursday's 5.6 rally for the S&P 500 following the release of October inflation figures rising less than expected was the best rally for that index on a CPI release date in history. It's an obscure record, I know, but typically monthly economic releases of inflation data are pretty mundane events for the markets. But these are not typical times. In case you missed the details, consumer prices rose to 0.4% last month, less than the 0.7% expected, with inflation coming in at a 7.7% annual seasonally adjusted basis. That's down from 8.2% in September and finally headed in the right direction. Investors jumped all over that news, sending the S&P up 5.9% on the week and the Nasdaq up more than 8%, the best week for both indexes since last June. The Dow Industrials popped more than 4%, and believe it or not, that old index is just 6.7% below its all-time high reach more than a year ago. According to our pal J.C. Peretz of All-Star Charts, who's the proud father of two twin baby boys, congrats. One month ago, only one sector, energy, was trading above its 200-day moving average. Today, there are five, energy, financials, healthcare, industrials, and materials. That's a trend, my friends. October has proven once again that it is not friendly to bear markets. The bulls are trying to make a comeback and looking for any good news to put money back to work in stocks. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, if you look into the rearview mirror, there are some critical events behind us. And that's making the visibility on the horizon a little bit clearer. The U.S. midterm elections are behind us. Politics usually doesn't play into our investing strategy until it forces its way in. But we got what we thought we might get in terms of election results, and that's gridlock. And gridlock is generally good for investors in the final two years of a presidential term. A Democratic president and a Republican or split Congress historically delivers a 12-month return of around 16.4% on average compared to around 10% when one party dominates the White House and Congress. That's because it's harder for a president to pass any new bills like tax increases or big spending measures, and that provides more visibility. Gridlock on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. can actually be beneficial for investors on Main Street like us. Midterms are behind us, and so is October's key inflation report, which leads us to number two. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that inflation report, and we'll do it Clint Eastwood style. First, the good. Inflation is trending in the right direction. We actually saw monthly declines in medical care, used vehicles, and apparel. 
which may cause the Federal Reserve to ease the pace of interest rate hikes ahead. The Dow Jones Industrials, as I mentioned, just 6.5% away from recent highs and rallying a lot in the past few weeks. And borrowing rates have finally stabilized a little bit for mortgages and loans. Now the bad. Prices are still pretty high, especially in energy and utilities, food, and shelter, all increasing double-digit year-over-year. And the Federal Reserve's inflation target is around 2%. We're at 7.7%. There's still a ways to go, as Chair Powell says. And consumer sentiment is near historic lows. Now the ugly. High food and energy prices hit low-income households the hardest. Households with more money can decide whether or not to take that vacation. That's discretionary spending power. Poor families do not. And credit card and bank card balances are nearing record highs, up 19% in the third quarter. The average loan debt per borrower, around $10,700. we got to keep an eye on that. And there are some cracks in the labor market. We're starting to see big layoffs. We saw them at Meta last week, Twitter, obviously, Snap. Salesforce, many big tech companies are announcing layoffs, and most companies are bracing for a recession in early 2023. And number three, we have to pick apart the collapse of the cryptocurrency trading platform FTX, so I brought in some heavy artillery to do just that. Cryptocurrency platform FTX filed for bankruptcy on Friday, ending a chaotic week in which the company behind FTX denied claims of liquidity problems, was nearly rescued by a buyout from Binance, another big cryptocurrency trading platform, only to have Binance back away from the deal due to, guess what, liquidity concerns. FTX was hit by a run of withdrawals last week, and the company was facing an $8 billion shortfall. The Wall Street Journal reported that FTX lent billions of dollars to fund risky bets at its affiliated trading firm, Alameda Research, using money that customers had deposited at FTX for trading purposes. For crypto watchers and investors, FTX's demise is a wake-up call to the cold facts that there are deep underlying issues in the crypto market that could undermine the investment thesis behind many of these risky coins and the platforms they trade on. At the heart of the matter is trust, but it's more complicated than that. To help us really understand how FTX fell apart and what investors should learn from it is our pal Lamar Wilson, one of the smartest people I know in the crypto world. Welcome back to The Express, Big Mar. Man, it's, it's really good to be here. And I'm very sad for a lot of people that have lost a lot of their uh, money and wealth this week, man. It's, it's pretty sad, but I'm happy to be here to try to help educate. I appreciate that so much. So how could this happen? There was some lending of money, but there was something else going on. What, from your perspective, how did this whole thing fall apart? Well, if you think about it, the issue that I have with all of this is not just necessarily on FTX, but it's also on those VC firms and lenders that enabled them. Um, if you think about it, they allowed FTX to use even their own created monopoly money, so to speak, their own FTT token as collateral. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine giving someone a loan against collateral that they created on their own? It seems kind of crazy, right? But that actually creates an environment where you have uh, false valuations of things that then allow you to continue to keep leveraging and leveraging and leveraging until you wind until the whole thing winds up falling apart. The crazy part about most of it is, is that Binance actually owns some of the FTT tokens. And that's what sent this whole thing into a spiral. When one of your major competitors owns a lot of your fake coins that you're using for collateral, when he when CZ got on uh, Twitter and announced that he was going to sell all of them, that sent everything into a spiral and actually basically pulled the curtain off the Wizard of Oz. And so everyone was able to see what was really going on behind the curtain. And of course, a lot of people, they they first mentioned that Binance was going to buy FTX, but I knew that CZ was really just using that again as a tactic to basically just put them completely out of their misery. And that's what happened, right? They said they were going to buy it. They looked at the books and then made another public statement like, no, we're not after looking deeper. So the way you protect yourself in all of this is number one, if you're buying Bitcoin, 
Get that Bitcoin off the exchange. Don't allow custodians to hold on to your Bitcoin. Because what we're finding is, is that even when they looked into FTX and before that, there's a site um, that basically tracks what they feel like the balances are of all of these exchanges. And they were at a negative balance. So that came before all of this fell apart. We were watching this in the Black Bitcoin Billionaires. So when that happens, what you realize is, is that a lot of these exchanges during the bull market were allowing people to buy Bitcoin that they didn't have, that they didn't have in reserve. And so that is how the whole once people start doing a bank run, so to speak, or an exchange run to get their Bitcoin, which is a bearer instrument. Then what happens is, is everything winds up falling apart because they have to go out into the market and go get these Bitcoin. But nobody else even has the Bitcoin. So I think this is just the beginning. I think Celsius was the first, not really the first, but one of the bigger first in this cycle, because this thing happens all the time. But I think we'll see even more of them start to fall apart. I'm hearing about uh, withdrawals not being able to be had at a, a lot of these different exchanges and some of these other OTC desks. And I think that's going to even show its ugly head as we continue down this path of unraveling. Remember this, though. A lot of these tokens, just like what FTX said, a lot of these tokens don't have any other value outside of the fact that these people created them. And so when you're out here looking at DeFi and all these other things, make sure you understand the complexities of how a Ponzi scheme works. Make sure you understand that a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily have liquidity. It just has a value. And if somebody who makes the token, makes the exchange, they can make it whatever value they want until the cows get called in. Right. And when that happens, then this is when all heck breaks loose. And that's why we're in the position that we're in right now in this space. Yeah, well, you answered a lot of my questions in that great explanation. <laughs> what I really felt this week, uh, last week for the first time, was this impact on price perception, on trust, and on the reality that a lot of investors are facing that it's really about the greater fool theory with a lot of these coins. What's the next person willing to pay for it? And when there's a big run on a lot of these coins, because the perception of value or liquidity changes, and it can change on a dime in these volatile assets, people run for the exits quickly. And when they do, there's really nothing there. Right. And what, what what I really say is a lot of these things are like, it's a casino. These exchanges have become casinos. All you have is people making bets on top of bets on top of bets on things that necessarily don't have any intrinsic value. The reason why, and I've been on your channels before, the reason why I always talk about Bitcoin is because it has a certain set of properties. If you go into a casino, the casino makes chips. They, they are the ones able to print the chips and they are able to, to distribute those chips. Bitcoin, no one can just create chips. It actually takes work. It actually takes actual computer uh, hashing power to make sure that you can create new coins. So therefore, that work, that cost that is associated with creating and distributing new coins actually adds a layer of value to it that these other coins mostly don't have because they're built out of thin air. They're basically, you could just create them. It's like making monopoly money and all of that. And then when you start piling other derivatives on top of the monopoly money, when you start collateralizing on top of the money, uh, monopoly money, and then everybody realizes it's monopoly money, the rug gets pulled, so to speak, as they say in the crypto space, you get rugged. So for me, that's why I really focus on Bitcoin a lot, because I've been in this game for a while. I understand how the technology works, the smart contracts. And most of these smart contracts, most of these coins are built like Ponzi schemes. And I hope that more people learn from this in this go around. I mean, some people just it just takes them to feel a little bit of hurt so they can get out of the casino, man. A lot of lessons being learned here and learned very quickly. And you're such a great teacher, Big Mar. We so appreciate you. The Black Bitcoin Billionaires Club. Check out Lamar on his YouTube channel. Follow him on the social media channels. So good to have you explain this to us. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you very much, Caleb. It's always great to be a part of Investopedia. 
Let's get set up for the week ahead. And investors have high hopes that the rally in stocks will continue. But keep in mind that it is not uncommon for stocks to have these 5 to 10% bear market rallies only to see deeper drawdowns ahead. This recent rally, though, feels a little more organized and broad-based. And as our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group points out, the bear market of the 1980s in the face of double-digit inflation lasted 22 months, wiping 27% off the S&P 500. Once inflation had peaked, however, the stock market hit a new high three months later. We're going to be paying attention to the retail sector this week, with earnings reports due out from Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, and Target, among others. Are they still bullwhipped from too much inventory of sweatpants and lawn furniture? And what's their temperature on holiday spending this year? We'll find out this week. We'll also get the October retail sales report and a read on producer prices. Consumer spending continues to hold up, but keep an eye on those rising credit card balances. On the geopolitical front, President Biden will meet Chinese leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit to discuss, quote, a range of regional and global issues. The ongoing war with Russia, tensions with Taiwan, and tariffs will likely be on the menu for that discussion. On the corporate calendar, General Motors and Procter & Gamble will both hold investor events this week. And there'll be additional updates on the U.S. housing market, beginning with the release of the NAHB's housing market index on Wednesday. On Thursday, the U.S. Census Bureau will report on October housing starts and building permits. Those, in addition to existing home sales, have declined every month this year. The average rate on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage topped 7% in recent weeks, reaching its highest level in over two decades. That's one small step for man. One We're going back to the moon. At least a NASA rocket is. NASA has set a two-hour launch window on November 16th for the launch of Artemis 1. The unmanned launch will be the first of NASA's Artemis missions that seek to bring astronauts back to the moon for the first time since 1972. The goal is to establish a presence there before sending people off to Mars. The launch will also be the first flight of Space Launch Systems, SLS, a 322-foot-tall rocket and the Orion spacecraft that will carry a human crew in future lunar missions. Kathy Wood has had a mercurial past few years. The CEO and chief investment officer of ARK Invest couldn't miss with her ARK ETFs covering innovation, space, exploration, genomics, fintech, and robots, among others, in 2020 and 2021. She was front page news and a highly sought after guest on business news shows and conferences. 2022 has been less than kind to her funds and her fame. ARK K, her ARK Innovation ETF, the flagship, is down more than 65% in the past year. Some of the other popular ETFs down even more. But through it all, Kathy has remained a believer, doubling down on her bets, investing more of her own money in her funds, and defending her firm's thesis and beliefs about how the world is transitioning through digital platforms, Web3, the metaverse, green technology, and innovation writ large. Full disclosure, I own several of those ETFs in my children's custodial accounts, and it hasn't been fun. Still, Kathy Wood is one of the most dynamic people in the investing world today, and whether you believe in the future she and her team see or not, you will come away from listening to her a lot smarter and a lot more curious. I caught up with Kathy at Web Summit in Lisbon a couple weeks ago, and she was good enough to spend a few minutes with me for The Express. Here is that conversation. Kathy Wood, so good to meet you. So good to have you and speak to you here at Web Summit. What's the thing that's most exciting to you about Web3, decentralized finance, and DeFi? What, what are you excited about? Goodness, these, the whole DeFi movement is what we believe is a financial services revolution. And so it's going to create incredible opportunities. So we have three full-time crypto analysts right now studying the three revolutions that we think are going to be caused by blockchain technology, the money revolution, 
which is all about the first global, digital, private, no government oversight, rules-based monetary system that the world has ever known. That's a very big idea. The second revolution is the financial services revolution that you're talking about and that is so well represented here. Very exciting. And we need these people to make it happen. And then the third is Web3, what many people call Web3, but what really is the first global digital property rights system. And it's really fascinating to watch younger people develop a sense of identity more digitally than they are physically these days. And we think that the reason is that these digital property rights are going to take off is because of that. So we're pretty excited about the whole thing. It seems outside the U.S. there's a lot more either patience or anticipation or optimism, at least when you come to a summit like this. What is it that people are seeing outside the U.S. or people are not seeing inside the U.S. that makes it so attractive and interesting? I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the difference, but what we are seeing is a difference between public market investors and private market investors. And the U.S., case in point, NASDAQ down more than a third this year. I think investor time horizons have shortened to one quarter, not even one year. And if companies don't make their numbers, then they're sold, which is ridiculous. If you're looking at the future, and we have a five-year investment time horizon, to make a decision on one quarter's numbers is ridiculous. Now, sure, the short terms accumulate to make up the long term, but innovation can be very messy and very volatile in its early stages. And I think, interestingly, because of crypto, young people have more tolerance for these long-term opportunities that are going to be very volatile in the short term. They understand, you know, average down into the volatility. If it's downside volatility, upside volatility, take some profits. Psychologically, that's a nice release. If you've taken some profits when something's up 30%, when it's down 50%, it's easy to move back in because you took those profits. So, you know, that's how we manage our portfolio. We trade around the volatility that is inherent to disruptive innovation. And our trading activity adds to our alpha, meaning we were not to trade our fund around the opportunities in our funds at all, just kept them static. Our trading activity increases the return. Without that trading activity, our returns would be lower. And it's also good old-fashioned dollar cost averaging, which is good in any environment, whether you're in a bull market or a bear market. So you led into my next question, which is patience and investing. It's actually the magic spice of investing, having patience. But when you are managing quarter to quarter, if you're a public company or a fund manager, investors, and I think the media doesn't help, they add to that sort of impatience and that lack of being willing to wait for things to develop and take their course. How, how important is it to be patient? And how do you sort of convince people to be like, hang in there because we're just in the early stages? Well, it's critically important to be patient, especially when it comes to disruptive innovation. Again, it's kind of messy in the beginning, can be very volatile. There's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt in this kind of investing because the traditional asset management world is so, now this is not private, this is public, is so benchmark sensitive. We own stocks, for the most part, that are not in the big benchmarks. And many people say, well, that's a a ridiculous way to invest. We beg to differ. 
what we think is the higher risk way to invest today, given how much innovation is taking place, is to stick with those benchmarks. They will deliver subpar returns if we're right and the five major innovation platforms around which we have centered all of our research, so genomic sequencing, robotics, uh, energy storage, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, those technologies are converging and creating explosive growth opportunities that are going to disrupt the traditional world order. So those people who think they're playing it safe by sticking close to benchmarks, we think over the next five years are going to find out that that was the wrong bet. Going into next year where everybody's pounding the table, it's going to be a recession or maybe it won't be. Does it matter and how much to the technologies you're investing in or does it maybe create a little bit of space for those to develop it a little bit more? Yes. So we believe we're in a recession, have been since the beginning of the year. And now most people are saying it will be next year. So we think that the recession will continue, but it's primarily an inventory recession that during the supply shock, that we saw. We also saw companies double ordering, triple ordering more than they needed if the supply chain got back into balance. Here we are. And so we do think we're going to have an inventory recession, but this is not like 08, 09 at all. In terms of how innovation stocks behave, well, during a recession, our companies tend to grow through the recession. And the other thing that happens and the headwind we've been fighting the last year and a half is interest rates tend to come down inflation comes down. And we think all of those things are, are in the process of happening. So it should be should be a great year for innovation investing. I mean, if we were hit the hardest, starting February of 21, not even the beginning of this year, it was almost a year before that, that our underperformance started solely because inflation and interest rate fears were ticking up. If we're on the other side of that, then the algorithms that have taken our portfolios down 70, 80%, they're going to have to change their minds. You know, they, they really are very simplistic in their way of looking at the world. They see interest rates going up, they banish innovation. They see interest rates coming down, they'll welcome it again. Who is your greatest influence as an investor? Who really helped sort of get you into the game and who have you learned from? Who was that person that sort of got you on your way? My first chief investment officer was Sig Sigalis at Jenison Associates. I was there for 18 years, grew up there, and he knew Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard and Gordon Moore and all of the great of all times. And so he inspired me with this love of technology that my father also had inspired me with, but I got a way to fulfill it in the financial markets. And just this idea that innovation solves problems, that it creates incredible growth opportunities for not only investors, but people who get on the right side of change. That's why ARC takes so seriously our role in terms of educating the public. Innovation is the great leveler. My father, sixth grade education, Irish Army, American Air Force, dawn of the electronic age. He learned about radar systems and made his way through this world, was able to provide for his family. I watched that growing up, and I see with all the innovation there is out there now, even the best schooled people in the world, they don't know that much about 3D printing or drones or, you know, or artificial intelligence. Those who get in on the ground floor and just learn 
and follow on Twitter. Follow our analysts on Twitter and follow who they follow. They can become better educated on some of these new technologies than people who are in the finest schools in the world today. The information is coming from everywhere. Yeah. Social media has been a good place for that yeah. in a lot of ways for all of its all of its ills. It does help us get access to that information. How do we get more women into investing, and especially into investing sort of at the forefront like you are? How do we drive that? Well, you know, I actually was talking to the CEO of PagerDuty, a woman, today about this, because we are finding it difficult to attract women even to ARC, even though, you know, woman-led company. And what she said to me was helping her, and I'm going to try this, is if you say, you want quality of life, you want work-life balance, come to our company. We respect not just women, but men's need for a balanced life. Now, if you're passionate about artificial intelligence or blockchain technology, you'll probably spend more than six to eight hours a day just because you want to. Those are the kinds of people that we attract. But if you don't want to, we're a great place to work, especially people who, and we're looking for five analysts right now. I can be advertising this with you. We're looking for five research associates, either fresh out of school or just a couple of years of work experience who have domain expertise in one of our technologies. And you can see how our analysts' responsibilities are broken out by technologies on our website, arc-invest.com. Finally, let's go out on this. What's your favorite investing term of all time? Investopedia is built on its terms. A lot of people know us for the dictionary. What's that investing term or finance term that just gets you going, that you love? Well, what I don't think people understand enough now, this is its somewhat what you're talking about. Many people do not understand what the, the words exponential growth mean. There's linear growth. Most of us grew up in a linear growth world, you know, where you would have growth very strong in the beginning, but then it decays and you get this idea of reversion to the mean or reversion to GDP growth. ARC is looking for exponential growth opportunities, and there are so many of them. What that means, and this happened to Amazon, so the internet was our first glimpse of what exponential growth could mean. In 2002, when we were trying, I was trying to sell the firm I was at at the time on Amazon. It was only a $5 billion cap. I was saying, why don't you put 25% revenue growth for the next 25 years or 20 years into your dividend discount models and tell me what you spit out. And it's a buy all day long if you really believe you can sustain growth at that level. We believe with our, our technologies, we're going to have so many exponential growth trajectories. And we also believe that most people are not expecting this because we've grown up in a linear world. So it's going to be exciting. Many people in the traditional world, because of what happened during the tech and telecom bubble and then the bust, many people in the traditional world are scared of this notion of exponential growth. The muscle memory is very bad, right? They did not have a good experience if they, if they were in the market at that time. And that's what is making this opportunity so interesting. Back then, investors were just flocking to it. The technologies weren't ready. We didn't get cloud until 2006. We didn't get deep learning until 2012. Uh, We didn't get costs low enough in DNA sequencing until a few years ago. So the the time was not right back then. It is now. And what's happening? Investors are running away. They're running for the hills. Where are the hills? They're benchmarks. That's going to be a mistake. 
We love that term, exponential growth, and the other, the cousin of that, risk-reward, because you have to be able to take that risk and believe in it to get the reward on Absolutely. the flip side. Kathy Absolutely. Wood from Mark Invest, so good to talk to you. Thanks for spending some time Thank with you, us. Thank you, Caleb. I love the service that you're doing for you know the future generations. I love it, and and for the current generations. You know, this is really important. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week, it's a reader's pick in that there was so much traffic to Investopedia.com last Thursday and Friday as FTX imploded that I decided to select the investing term with the most traffic and explain it here on the Investopedia Express. That term, cold wallet. You heard Big Ma referring to it earlier when we were talking about FTX. Well, what is a cold wallet? A cold wallet is used offline for storing Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies. With a cold wallet, also originally known as cold storage, the digital wallet is stored on a platform not connected to the internet, thereby protecting it from unauthorized access, cyber hacks, and other vulnerabilities that a system connected to the internet is susceptible to. If you have a cold wallet or keep your crypto in cold storage, a cryptocurrency transaction to receive new tokens might look a little like this. First, you connect the hardware to an internet-enabled computer. Then, you select the option to receive tokens. The device generates an address to facilitate the transaction. The sender initiates a transfer of tokens to the address generated, and then the investor disconnects the hardware wallet, which contains the public and private keys, and the information remains offline. A cold wallet is different in that way from a hot wallet, which is where a lot of crypto investors keep their coins on platforms like Coinbase and FTX, among others. If you're thinking about investing in crypto, make sure you know how these systems work. We're going to be dropping some helpful links into the show notes below. We're going to let Warren and Charlie take us out this week. The nonagenarians have never been big fans of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. No secret there. And back in May at the annual meeting in Omaha, someone fed them a softball question on why they don't trust cryptocurrencies. Safe to say, they knocked it out of the park. I have the problem that it draws in a lot of charlatans and that sort of thing who are trying to create various sorts of exchanges or whatever it may be. It, you know, it, it's something where, where people who are of less than stellar character see an opportunity to uh, clip people who are trying to get rich because their neighbors getting rich buying this stuff and neither one of them understands. It will come to a bad ending. Charlie? Well... I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. (laughs) And so, to me, it's just dementia. And I think the people who are professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. Note to investors from Charlie Munger, don't trade turds. In case you missed our Your Money, Your Health event a couple weeks ago, we posted the entire afternoon of sessions on our YouTube channel, which you'll find in the show notes. There are some great insights there on the future of healthcare, how to invest today, and how to be a smarter patient in control of your money and your health. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Lamar Wilson for coming back onto the show and to Kathy Wood for making time for me at Web Summit. Full transcripts to those conversations will be posted on Vestipedia.com slash The Express Podcast, and we'll link to their sites and social media channels and all the reports we cited on this show in the show notes. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.